And we are live, ladies and gentlemen, with episode three of the Tempshift podcast with me, your host, Mineral. And once again, we have a very special guest. If you guys are um, Overwatch fans, which I assume you are if you're listening to this podcast, you uh, might have heard that the Toronto Defiant made a historic move, one that no one else has made in terms of being the first team to ever move away from a full Korean roster and go for a mixed roster. And today we're lucky enough to have the mastermind behind the decision, the general manager of the Defiant, Jay. How's it going, Jay? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, morning, morning for me, and I guess e- like uh, evening, late afternoon for you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and again, th- thank you for being so gracious with your time for getting up a little earlier. It's obviously you know not 9 a.m. Uh, where you are. You guys are very busy, so really appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. And uh, as I alluded to, we obviously have to get to um, the big news, which is um, you know you guys moving to uh, a mixed roster, and uh, we'll definitely get to that. But before that, I kind of want to lay the foundation for the discussion a little bit. I think uh, it's interesting to talk about the Toronto Defiance season because it has been interesting. There's a lot of things that happened leading up to this point and i think it's uh easier that way to kind of understand how you guys got to this point uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that but before we even head into that i kind of want to touch a little bit on you because i think a lot of people might not know that you are sort of an uh especially i guess people who started following the league when overwatch league launched because i think you weren't really uh, associated with a team uh publicly during season one most people might not know that you are sort of an og in the scene you have been around since the get-go since closed beta uh starting off with uh the team final go mccree which has some certainly has some legends in it um or had at least the original iteration of the roster had some legends in it and uh, clockwork and flame and uh pure who is um you know also shout out to pure he's doing very well with triumph right now the team that is uh, kind of stomping in trials and obviously that team went on to become Splice, and that's where you kind of uh, made a name for yourself. So um, uh, I guess where we can start is kind of what was your experience like with Splice? What did you kind of learn uh, during that process? Obviously, you brought a lot of knowledge and experience from the military. So, you know, what, what did you kind of learn and what was uh, the time in Splice like leading up to this point? And how has that kind of experience helped you in your role with the Defiant? Well... I guess it was kind of interesting. I don't know if you want me to go into how I met the guys and ended up being with the team originally. Sure. Or do you want me to go directly right into like our experiences with Splice? No, you can you can talk. Uh, you can sort of begin where it makes sense uh, for for the story. Uh, well, so it's kind of an interesting story, I guess, mainly because um, it's about it was in closed beta, so. I'll, when I played closed beta, I was still uh, actively in the UN, in the U.S. Army, but I was in the transition period when I was getting out of the Army. And so during this time when you're transitioning out of the, the military, you tend to have a lot of more free time on your hands. And a friend of mine um, asked me if I he, – he used to work at Blizzard, and he doesn't work there anymore, but um, he, he left for his own reasons. This is like way before the Overwatch League, but um, – he asked me if I wanted to play this game, and he said he was Overwatch, and he can get me into the beta. I said, I, said, I have a lot of time on my hands, so I said, sure. And he got me into the beta, and I was in the closed beta. It was kind of interesting because uh, a lot of people don't realize, I guess now, especially in this, how far it is into, I guess, the retail version of Overwatch. But the closed beta community was very small. Um, 
you know, everyone pretty much got to know each other really quickly. And it was kind of funny because during that time, I, I don't, I don't know if you remember, very few people ever wanted to play uh, supports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it was pretty terrible. And so, just like everyone, whenever they play a game, like everyone played DPS. Even I played DPS initially, but because I got frustrated, especially in uh, competitive in closed beta, I started playing supports. But it was like I was had no idea what I was doing when I was playing support. So. Uh, just like a lot of people back then, there was not a lot of streamers. Obviously, Brandon Siegel was the the most popular streamer back then, uh, but he didn't really he wasn't a support main. Uh, probably the only support main really that streamed constantly was uh, Brad or Pure. So I would watch him, and after a while, me and Brad got to know each other just from me watching a stream. We would chat all the time, and then we would start playing with each other in game. And I had remember at at a certain point. Uh, we, be, me and Brad became very close. Uh, and then he had told me that he was going to make this team. Uh, we didn't, he, he was fine. I'll go McCree. And they wanted to go, I guess, get signed by a team. And he asked for my help mainly because he knew that I was, you know, getting out of the military, but he also knew my background in the military. And I guess basically it was sort of on the lines that I was the most adult person that their group knew. Like, it was just as funny as that sounds. Even though most of them were all, I mean, all of them were adults too. But in terms of just like experience and just like managing and all that stuff in terms of just like people and administration. So I said, yeah, sure. I had a lot of time on my hands. So um, we basically made a team deck uh, and shopped around for teams. There was a couple of teams that they did talk to. But uh, we ended up talking to Splice. Uh, we had a meeting with uh, Marty, who uh, who used to be the owner of Splice. Now he's, you know, part of Overactive Media um, as a VP of Performance. And then Kyle, who used to be the GM of Splice, who now he's still at Overactive Media. Um, and we liked basically Splice, and we got signed on with them, which is kind of pretty funny. Mm-hmm. So something, um, you know, you guys had an up and down run. You had, had some uh, positive results. You went through a lot of different iterations of the rosters. And eventually, uh, I guess we can talk about is the transitional phase where most of the teams were dropping uh, their rosters. And Splice obviously kind of joined on the train because this this was happening during, I guess, what we refer to as the dark times of Overwatch, where Overwatch League was still maybe you know, six to seven months away at least, and no one really knew what they were investing in. So everyone was dropping the rosters, and Marty uh, made these this announcement uh, or posted this video where he kind of explained the situation. You know, he was like, this is not farewell in the sense that we would never come back to the scene, but we really don't know what's going on right now. There's no competition really, so there's nothing to warrant an investment now. We will definitely consider coming back to it, but it doesn't really make sense now. And Obviously, there was still a lot of speculation during that time because I'm not sure whether it was already public and it was a done deal or whether it was still rumors. But I believe at that time, uh, it was also rumored that Robert Kraft was going to get the Boston spot, which obviously led to a lot of speculation because at that time, Boston Bruins had invested in Splice. So a lot of people were like, well, maybe Splice is just pulling out because they missed out on the Boston spot. And again, Marty, I think in that announcement video, said that that certainly you know that's certainly not the case we're not just interested in boston it's just you know this this is what the landscape is and that's why we have to kind of 
uh, pull out, which, you know, again, made sense because that's what most teams did. And, uh, you know, obviously your roster split up. Uh, some of the guys went to Kungarna. They had some relative success there. Most of them have ended up in the league now. Uh, Brad went to Mega Thunder to kind of lead that project with guys like, uh, I think he brought Elk, Graceful, and Moffitt with him as, as Western players. So what was sort of your situation like at that time? Were you ever considering going together with Brad to Mega? Uh, did you stay with Splice in another role? What, what was sort of the time leading up to the Overwatch League for you before you guys hooked up with Overactive Media and got the uh, job or sort of the uh, Toronto Defiant spot? So during the year that we were... I guess a little over a year that we were Splice Overwatch. Obviously, we did have ups and downs. You know, we did do a ton of roster iterations. Uh, obviously, you did name a lot of the OG roster because we did have Flame, uh, my fellow compatriot on the Houston Outlaws, uh, as a member of the team. You know, Brad, uh, uh, Brad, who currently obviously is working at the NBA 2K League. You know, he's also a co-founder of Triumph, um, which is doing very well. Um, you know, there was. Clockwork, who's, who's also on the Outlaws, as well as, you know, Steel, who's doing st still pretty well in CSGO. It's, you know, good for him. Uh, you know, there was also Kozen and then some other guys on that team. But obviously, obviously, we went through some roster iterations, you know. Then eventually we brought in the half of Kangarna, like uh, iRemix, Michael, uh, you know, Baby Bay, Motorious. And then a lot of people didn't realize during this time that Splice didn't expect to drop Overwatch, uh, even though with the ups and downs, obviously, though, because, you know, the dark times of Overwatch, because there was not much going on. Obviously, there was yeah. the, was it the, the, the Ghost of Gamers uh, monthlies at that point? Sometimes it was like, at that time, after a while, like, there was even very little support from that. Um there was like maybe one monthly a tournament or two at most a, a month. A month. Yeah. There was very little weekly stuff going on. Um, after that one E-League thing, you know, there was no more. Uh, obviously, mainly because Blizzard was preparing for the Overwatch League. So their support for everything else was sort of like dwindling, yeah. basically. So, But for orgs at the time, because... You know, they didn't see a lot of uh, support from Blizzard for, I guess, uh, you know, third party. It was kind of like hard for them to justify uh, fielding an entire Overwatch League uh, roster as well as support staff. You know, it was kind of sad at the time because we were trying to do a lot of changes at the end uh, that a lot of people didn't realize. Uh, you know, we had been trialing Bishu also. Um, you know, we even we're working on bringing in a new coach and he had been working with the team. This is actually right before we let the team go. Uh, and he's actually doing really well right now because uh, we went through several iterations of coaches. Like Sword had been an assistant coach on the team who, you know, he was on Team Canada um, as well as Wizard Young. Mm -hmm. He was he had been uh, one of our coaches. Uh, near the end, uh, the guy that had been working for the team for about three weeks was David or Dipe who's now on LA Gladiators, yeah. uh, he just never became officially coached because we had dropped the team by that time. Uh, so that was unfortunate. But after, when right after they Marty made the – because he made the call – he made the talk in person with the team. Like he let the team know 
in person that he was letting them go because the team had been doing a boot camp in um, New England at the time. Um, so, but Marty came up, he sat everyone down, he told the team. And then afterwards, basically both him and Kyle had asked me to, you know, they had a separate talk with me and they had asked me to continue on, even though they were letting Overwatch go because during the, the time that I had been managing Overwatch 4 Splice, they basically liked my management style with the team and wanted me to stay along with the organization. And they would find a way to give me a role in the team, and which, they, which is basically what they did. So I became the assistant general manager. Uh, I also started a new uh, division for them, which was the fighting game division. We signed a new player and everything. But at that time, you know, I basically managed all the North American teams for Kyle. And then at some point, we split up the kind of like the European and the North American teams. So I became head of North America uh, while our European division, you know, was Call of Duty at the time and League of Legends. Uh, so I ran all the North American teams as well as all the partnerships for Splice. So I became the North American uh, team manager as well as the partnerships manager. So after the transition out of Overwatch, I just stayed with Splice in a different role, just in head of all their North America, mm. basically. Yeah. And it's fun when, when you talk about those times again, you mentioned the boot camp in New England, and that actually flashed a memory where I remember you guys were doing this promo, I think, for some sponsor thing. And I, I still remember the video with the guys in the bathtub and all that stuff. So th those were some those, those were some fun times, and it was really a shame to see them go. But like you said, there's a lot of people who were involved with Splice at the time who have gone on to have exceptional success. You mentioned Deepay, who I think ended up with Kungarna at that time. And again, Kungarna overperformed. They did very well in Season 0 uh, with all those guys. So, uh, you know, that, that, that was obviously very fun to see. And so kind of Overwatch League is... Uh, you, you guys see Overwatch League developing over Season 1. Uh, when did you guys know that you were going to try and get into Season 2? And... Were you sort of uh, really looking forward to, because again, you dabbled with a bunch of different divisions. Were you really looking uh, forward to getting back into Overwatch? Did you want to kind of uh, get to the G uh, GM job for the Overwatch division if you guys uh, managed to kind of get a spot? Uh, what was sort of the thinking process throughout uh, as you were watching, I guess, Overwatch from afar? Uh, yep, yeah, pretty much. So at the time that even though I was in head of all of North American teams, um, we had dropped fighting games. So basically, my two passion things uh, for Splice had gone away, which is Overwatch and fighting games. So I was basically managing all the teams that were really not really related to historically that I played. But I had no problem with it. You know, a job is a job. You do what you have to do. But, you know, it's kind of different when you manage, I guess, or work in games you passionately care about more uh i think you, you, i guess you would it's easy to understand like you know if you actively play certain games all the time obviously you care to manage them more uh it's you know so when we found out that we were getting the overwatch league spot i basically told marty i don't care what happens i will drop my current position and only do that and he basically he said that, yeah, I understand. I, I I was waiting for your message 
because <laughs> he knew that it was going to happen. So, yeah. and then, yeah, it was pretty much a, a done deal at that point. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, we were pretty excited. It's kind of like interesting because there's not a lot of really concrete information out there about the whole like application process and the bidding process for an Overwatch League spot. And, you know, there's obviously tons of reasons why, you know, there's a ton of NDAs behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will, you know, one thing what we can say is that you are never really sure you got the spot until you get the spot. And it could be right up to the point, like, like until they officially announce it, you're never really sure, mm-hmm. basically. So uh, once we knew, it was pretty much we had to go like full throttle. Like everything had to get done at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess there were there was some public like a pub- public disputes in terms of. I mean, everyone kind of knew that there were rumors that Fnatic is definitely uh, getting in. They're getting the. Um, um, I forgot which city it was like a, a city in Thailand Bangkok I think like that was very heavily rumored and then that never panned out uh, so you know it, it sort of makes sense what, what you're saying there's you know there's, the demand for a spot was very very high a lot of teams wanted to get in a lot of ownership groups wanted to get in so uh, yeah it, it must have been awesome to hear that you guys got the spot and you know you, you do get the spot you get the job as the GM uh, as you mentioned uh, I think on oversight was Priority number one was build out a coaching staff first before you address anything else. And uh, what you mentioned was, uh, as you were looking for a head coach, which which is obviously going to be the first hire, you ended up sitting up sitting in on a call with Bishop, talking for several several hours, and you over this sort of long discussion realized that you really see eye to eye. Your philosophies really match, uh, is is what you mentioned. So I'm a little curious about. Uh, where what kind of values did you guys share what were there sort of specific things where you went into the process and you thought this i really need in a head coach i really need him to see eye to eye with me in the in this sort of uh regard what, what were sort of the values that you guys shared when when you eventually made that hire i think some of the values we both shared was that uh like a lot of it was having to do with player welfare like uh, Bishop mainly, you know, he did come up from, not all coaches do come up, obviously, straight from players. There are coaches also that come from, you know, different, they either come from different games or they come from completely uh, not video game backgrounds. That does happen also. I, I know that did happen a lot before in CSGO. Someone brought in coaches that have coaching experience, like in like sports and transitioned them into esports. But uh, you know, in Overwatch, Bishop, you know, he came directly from player. Uh, when he was on Kongdu Panthera, he became the ca- uh, team captain at one point for Kongdu Panthera. Uh, and then he transitioned to the head coach of C9 at, and then into London. So, I mean, he was the, it was kind of, he was in the unique position that he was the first Korean coach, uh, I believe, at the, of a Western mm-hmm. uh, Overwatch team. Yep. Uh, you know, so him being bilingual obviously does help. Uh, so a lot of the values we both saw was had to do with player welfare. So a lot of the things he cared about were a good work-life separation. Because um, 
his main issue a lot of the time was that Korean in Korean esports there's very little work life separation. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Western esports there is tends to be a ton of work life separation. And Bishop wanted something that had to do with a balance where you know you could still have uh, kind of almost like something very similar to um, where he he appreciated sort of like the Western work-life uh, balance, but not to a point where the Korean players would just fall off. But And the thing is, Bishop also kind of appreciated the fact that I wanted to make a team that he wanted, mainly because his experiences before in Overwatch, a lot of the time he felt that his roster decisions were basically being countermanded either by marketing uh, from above or, you know, just generally just like he would get overruled mainly mainly because uh, either management thought they knew better or just ownership thought they knew better. Which does happen quite a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure your experiences with that. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've you've experienced that yourself as a head coach. Yeah, but you know, you know that does that does happen. So, and we also wanted to make a coaching staff basically that could be tailored to him. So, a lot of times in esports a lot of times you head coaches are not really given a choice in who their assistant coaches are mm-hmm. and basically we said we wanted to make sure that he was comfortable with his assistant coaches we're not going to just throw him with assistant coaches that we wanted him to play with or just work with but we wanted to find assistant coaches that he wanted to work with originally so basically his coaching staff was basically the coaching staff he wanted to be with initially mm-hmm yeah, and that's uh, yeah. I think that's super important because you want to find guys who complement each other, where you don't have a lot of overlapping uh, kind of skill sets. And yeah, I, I do definitely relate to that, where you don't have kind of full control of what your coaching staff is is going to look like always, as uh, always in sort of every team as an L coach. And certainly something you mentioned with kind of balance. I think that's also a big kind of culture clash. It's something that I certainly experienced this year when we had majority Korean roster and Western players. Western side had, were sort of on the one side of the extreme, whereas the Korean side was on the other extreme. Like Korean players are used to just working 12 to 14 hours a day. Just we're going to outwork everyone and we're going to, you know... Um, that that's how we reach success. That's how we uh, reach success in our other teams. That's the only thing we know. And you're not really you, maybe you're close-minded in that regard. Whereas like the Western players are inherently close-minded in the sense that no, we definitely need like work and life separation. We need to work this amount of hours, not more, not less, because then uh, we're re- reaching sort of a point of dimin- diminishing returns, right? So that was, I think, a very hard line for us to maneuver. Uh, so I'm curious because you guys came into the season. Uh, or with kind of Bishop's mindset and your mindset that you do want to have a balance, you do want to make sure your players don't burn out that quickly. Was it hard to bring that to the Korean players because you guys have a full Korean roster and I imagine a lot of them are used to that mentality where, no, we just have to work harder. That's that's how we're going to get the wins. Uh, actually, no. Actually, it's kind of interesting. And I don't know if all teams have experienced this yet, 
But from what I have heard, that there is some, I guess, continuity in this. And because the Overwatch League is so predominantly Korean, and let's not let's be frank, it's just it just is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's what over eighty percent Korean. Yeah, Korean. Uh, I don't think it's that or high. Is yet. It, or it. It's Six, pretty high, but I don't know yeah. what what the ex- I think I think it's between sixty and seventy ish. At least it was before yeah. the season. I'm pretty sure. I think that was before. I think that was with season one. Season two, though, was pretty rough because the influx of Korean players was massive. Yeah. For season two, uh, it basically um, drained mo- almost all the talent out of Contenders Korea. Uh, so the thing is. What we've kind of found out is that there's a bit of complacency in Korean players right now, uh, mainly because they feel like it's hard to it's it's not hard to explain. It's mainly because they feel like I guess they're the dominant region, uh, and you know, right, justfully so, right? They haven't been toppled as a dominant region, even the Overwatch World Cup in you know they won. They've won everything pretty much. Yeah. The only time that they haven't, I guess, is the season two when Shock won. And even that is still a mixed half Korean roster uh, led by a Korean coach. So, you know, historically, Koreans have done very well for themselves. But what we found is kind of interesting is that the Western players lately have been working very, very hard. And this may not have been true before Overwatch League. But nowadays, European and North American players are tend to be, I guess, grinding much harder, mainly because they just have to, because they just never got the chance to get into uh, just the the difficulty of them getting the Overwatch League is much more difficult than obviously because what do what do Overwatch teams look at right now, it, especially when they're trying to pick new new players up. They automatically look at Korea, right? Especially Contenders Korea. So for North American and European players to stand out, they have to work harder. And we've sort of discovered this, especially with our our current move to Gods and Sharik, is that North American players are not lazy and uh, neither are European players at all. You know, they grind the game uh, and they, they sort of have a passion and it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they have this drive to really make it. And once they do make it in the Overwatch League, they have this drive to stay in the Overwatch League because it's so much more the, – the ceiling for them to get through into the Overwatch League is so much more difficult than it is for Korean players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I can definitely – understand that and how that's shifted over time because if you think about it early day, in the early days of Overwatch – all the money was in the Western scene. Like all the organizations, the Western players were getting paid much, much more than Korean players who were almost playing for free, even though they leveled up in skill so much. And obviously, as time goes on, they over they uh, they have less to work with, so they perform better. And then the resources shift to the Korean scene, and obviously now the resources are drained in Europe. And Europe was one of the better paid regions uh, together with with an A in the beginning. And I think yeah, it it just forces you to shift your mindset i think you know we, there have been even players who are relatively famous like baby bay he was very open 
uh, with this discussion where he said, you know, I, I kind of got lazy. I wasn't practicing as hard until I sort of lost my spot. And then I started grinding like a madman. And obviously now he's ended up in what seems to be a pretty good situation for him with a starting position with the Atlanta Reign. But you get very complacent. You don't learn that you have to work for stuff when you just kind of get it or you've, you've already, you feel like you've paid your dues and you're, you're done. But that's really not the case. And we've, I think that's sort of what we've seen, what you're kind of alluding to with this uh, shift in... Uh, resources and uh something um before we kind of get into sharik and gods something i want to talk a little bit about is kind of your off season kind of to lay the table for this uh you know you guys head into the uh, team building process uh with with your coaching staff then you guys ran trials in october you finished the roster i I believe relatively quickly Uh, obviously you're facing a lot of hurdles you're competing with seven other uh teams, expansion teams during this exclusivity window, as you kind of alluded to on um, Oversight, you're also, you know, dealing with, what should we call it? I guess we can refer to it as soft tampering by teams who are already in the league where, you know, they can still run trials before uh, that that time. Maybe they can even run trials during the exclusivity window. They can't put, you know, a contract in front of players, but they can certainly tell the players that, well, if you're still around, maybe we can... uh, uh, figure something out uh, if if you're not signed by the end of the exclusivity window, which is why I think a lot of stars, you know, think Decay, think Jexy, they wait out because it's in their best interest. They know they have interest in teams who are already in the league. They know they have interest from expansion teams. So they want to have kind of a bidding war, right? But at the same time, you don't want to miss out on talents during your window. So it's, there's a lot of hurdles to, to work with. You're also, you also have to consider budget because unless your organization kind of gives you several million to drop on Runaway, you have to be smart. You can't spend any everything on one player. You have to build out the entirety of roster, minimum eight players, right? So, and again, that's something you said was part of your philosophy that you don't want to blow the entirety of the budget and then not be able to make moves during the, during the season and just be hank after the rest of the year. You don't want to do that. So I guess my question is, what was sort of your philosophy going into this entire process, dealing with all of these hurdles? Were there certain positions or roles where you felt like this is where we definitely need to invest a little more? This is where we need our star power um, over some other positions? What, what was kind of the mentality and the values you were, look, you were looking for in uh, in the players you picked up? Um, one thing I will say is that it, that roster did not, it was not easy to finish mainly because, uh, there's a lot of difficulties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it did take, actually, we didn't complete the roster fully, our full eight man until, uh, maybe near the deadline, basically. Uh, so near the deadline is when we signed Roki. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it did have to do with competition. Uh, so there is an exclusivity window. Uh, that exclusivity window obviously is about 30 days. Uh, but there is very little that you can do about other teams talking to players uh, and just telling them that they'll to, to wait. And you can't prove it. Nobody can prove it. Uh, you know, even if they're signed later on, like, and they even, so if you're talking to a player and they say, hey, I don't want to uh, continue on our discussion. And then you find out from their teammates, basically, hey, they got an offer from another team, uh, basically just telling them to wait. And we can't tell you what team it is. 
And that's pretty much how we just, you know, we have to let go. So even though we've been spending maybe two to three weeks trying to pursue this player, all of a sudden, because they got an offer from one of the original 12 teams, you know, we have to basically start over again. Um, For a long time, we only had two signed players, and then we would trial a whole bunch of people. And it was pretty difficult because we started our boot camp. uh, We had signed Envy. Um, and then we had signed another player who actually didn't work out for the team. So we let him go because mainly because the good thing about a boot camp is you get to see player synergy and how players get along in a, cl- a close environment. Cause it's a little different, obviously, if you just play online all the time, mm-hmm. but uh, while at the boot camp, we found that these two players did not get along at all. So we eventually ended up, you know, letting him go. And we went through a ton of trials. Like, I think at one point we had trialed like 13 main tanks. And even though you trial 13 main tanks, uh, some of the main tanks you want end up not being available just because other teams either bid first, uh, signed a contract with them first, um, or they have history with somebody else. So if a, I'm not, I won't name the team. So I'm not going to name any teams, obviously. But if a head coach from a Korean team ends up going to Overwatch League and asks that his main tank to go with him, even though he's been trialing for us, the main tank is generally going to go with him, mainly because he has loyalty to his original head coach. And that just happens. Uh, even if it, even if, you know, it was, it was turning out well for us. So, there was maybe like three to four main tanks that we wanted that we basically could not have. Um, eventually, though, we did end up, we, we pretty much did like Yakpong. Uh, after trialing with him for a while, uh, he did have pretty good synergy with Envy at the boot camp. Um, and then because we kept trialing a ton of different players, especially for the the support roles. Yakpong suggested we bring in a lot of his teammates from O2 because they were very very much available. And that a lot of teams were not looking at O2. Uh, they were kind of like overlooked very by a lot of the Overwatch League teams. There was obviously a huge uh, interest in Kongdu, uh, Element Mystic, uh, Runaway. Uh, the thing with Runaway is that they were not accepting uh, really any conversations about individual players because, you know, they wanted to, you know, go together as a team. Uh, Runaway did speak to many organizations at the time, um, you know, they but they always wanted to stay together, which is very commendable. Um, so, you know, there's obviously heavy interest in Kongdu players, there's heavy interest in Element Mystic players, and uh, X6 uh, but there was almost no interest in O2. You know, some of them got trials for Overwatch League teams, but the majority of them was very much overlooked, which is kind of interesting because, you know, they did very well in Contenders Korea Season 1, and they still did very well in Contenders Korea Season 2. So, you know, though a lot of people will say that they kind of overperformed in Contenders Korea Season 1, but still, you know, for a team that had very good results in two 
back-to-back Korean seasons, you know, we had expected that there'd be a lot more competition for them, but there was actually almost none. So we started trialing a lot of the O2 players. Uh, so we trialed um, Stellar, Ivy, um, Climax. We did trial Climax. A lot of people, you know, have questions about if we did trial Climax or not. We did Climax, uh, trial Climax. You know, we did trial Rain, uh, their, one of their support players. Um, so we did end up liking the pre-existing synergy of Ivy, Stellar, and Yakpung, uh, kind of over Climax. Not that, so Climax is very much, uh, I would say, a, an excellent hit scan skilled mechanical player. The thing with Ivy is that Ivy is also an excellent, you know, projectile mechanical player. The Ivy's playstyle is that he. He's not a heavy calm, uh, comms player. He's very much an instinctual player, and he just basically wants to go in and do his thing, but he doesn't want to lead. He needs someone like another player, like another DPS player to basically, um, I guess, be his direction or basically be his partner. In DPS, and thing with Climax is that Climax is kind of similar. So Ivy will tunnel vision a lot, and uh, Climax will also tunnel vision a lot. So you have two players that are very much very similar in style, and we kind kind of couldn't work with that. Uh, Stellar was mechanically much weaker than Climax, but he was also much more of a cerebral player. He was a bit smarter. He calmed a lot constantly. So basically, that's how we ended up with those two mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. So obviously, like you mentioned, there's so many hurdles that you might not even have. Um, you don't really have control of a lot of situations, even if you're kind of pursuing the right guys, because you don't really have the option to control a lot of situations. But if you know something you said that you mentioned in one of the interviews that you think is kind of the hardest part of a GM is to sort of predict what will work and kind of get ahead of issues in, in that sense. So out of the things that you could control, were there any things, anything where you look back and you think, oh, this was kind of an unforeseen error? You know, maybe we should have taken this situation a little bit seriously. Maybe we underestimated the importance of uh, this situation. Maybe we should have had uh, more depth at this position because of how important it is. Was there anything like that where you feel like you could have potentially uh, controlled or, or, or taken more seriously um, that, that, you know, looking back at, do you think you could have uh, changed? I think at the time, probably not so much, uh, mainly because, you know, just a lot of things were so unforeseen. Even with the information we have now, uh, a lot of things we just could not change, mainly because we were so constrained by, number one, time constraints. Uh, number two, you know, you do have budgetary constraints. Not, you know, every team does have budgets, um, as well as, you know, you just have to see what's working for you at the time. You know, you don't have time. You do have a limited time at a boot camp. We had about a little, we had about a month and a half. And so it's during this time that you basically have to figure out what's working for you at the time. Um, we did have kind of like a video series. It was kind of funny. It was interesting. Um, uh, I don't know if you watched it. It was like becoming defiant. Like a bishop kind of narrated most of it. Um, while about sort of like our boot camp experience mm-hmm. in Korea. Yeah, I think I think I caught it. And a lot of it was that you know we did have you know while uh, while the team is trying to develop synergy, mm-hmm. you know especially in the three three or goats meta, 
synergy is the most important mm-hmm. thing, right? You know, you got to have teamwork. So there was no synergy at all. So, you know, obviously the team was doing terribly in the beginning, uh, which with Korean players, if they're doing terribly initially, they tend to lose a lot of motivation, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, but after a while, you know, basically, you know, the grind, they keep grinding together and the mood obviously starts to shift. And so the team obviously gets much better results as they keep going along, because that's just how it goes. You need to start, you need to keep playing together. You need to have, you need to develop that synergy. So, uh, once the team started developing that synergy, even if the players, some of the players didn't think that everybody was the best in their position they kind of understood you know both the constraints we were under as well as the difficulty of uh you know bidding for certain players against other teams uh players that we had wanted that were unavailable you know even if we so the thing in in overwatch is that if you want another player from another overwatch team it really doesn't matter you could talk to you could you could talk to that overwatch league team and say hey we're interested in your player and they can just say no and that's it that's the end of it it's only contenders teams uh that can't do any of that overwatch league teams can always so let me just get this straight i don't know if there's any reddit rumors or any of this thing out there when an overwatch league team wants another player from another overwatch league team doesn't matter how badly that team wants that player if that overwatch league the other overwatch league team does not want you to even talk to that player it's not happening. Just that's flat out not happening. Does not. There's no if ands or buts about it. So let's, you know, squash any rumors about saying, hey, maybe the player has any rights behind it. Yep, yeah, there are tons of player rights, but not when it comes to what team they move to. So that is totally based off, you know, if the team allows it. So, mm-hmm. you know, with contenders, it's definitely different. You know, contenders is, you know. Overwatch League teams basically can talk to contenders players directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Academy, not so much. Academy, you do do have to let the, the the Overwatch League team that is responsible for the Academy team know that you're going to talk to the contenders player, but at the same time, they can't stop you from it. Even though there have been some League teams that have tried to stop Overwatch League teams from taking their Academy players, mm-hmm. which does happen and i'm sure you're familiar with that as well yeah 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 i mean the way the way it works i guess to add to that with academy teams is that you can talk with the players you can trial them if you give them an offer um whatever it may be say you know you give them an offer of a 80k salary or 100k salary that's when if the player accepts you go to the team and then you negotiate a buyout you can maybe negotiate a lower buyout but if you offer a buyout that is 100% of the salary that you offered. So if you offer 100K salary and you offer 100K buyout, the academy, the team that owns the, the rights to that player, to that academy player, has, has to either let that player go and accept the buyout or he, that team has to match that offer, sign that player under the exact same um, salary and you know, sort of the exact same contract, and then they have to bring him up to their own roster. So that's sort of how it works uh, for the academy teams. But like you say, if, you, if a team... If an Overwatch League team has a player and they don't want to let him go, there's really nothing you can do. And maybe sometimes they will just kind of give you um, an out of the ball, um, you know, request. Okay, give give us half a mil or give us a mil, and then we can talk. But really, you know, you don't really have such luxury most of the time to 
you know, if you, you can just put kind of put your requirements of uh, an offer at wherever you want, right? So in that regard, any Overwatch League can, team can keep their players. So I guess we can sort of talk a little bit about uh, your stage one and stage two, sort of where you are, where you were at the end of stage two. Uh, a lot of kind of very up and down season for you. You start stage one, you go five and two, admittedly with a bit of an easier schedule, you go into the playoffs, you lose there. And then obviously there's the stellar retirement. You pick up, I'm 37, you go into stage two and you go two and five. So you end up at seven and seven and really kind of the eye test in the playoffs was a little scary from the outside looking in. And then obviously stage two was also very underwhelming from from your side. Admittedly, you guys had a very, very tough schedule. You had Vancouver and Chalk, kind of that doubleheader that you have out of the way now. You don't, as an Atlantic team, you don't have to play them anymore, which is uh, great to get that out of the way. You also played uh, Philly and Dallas. So basically out of your seven games in stage two, you had... Uh, four out of the top, top seven teams. I think you also had Boston, which is always a tough outing. And then you had like two bottom teams, right? So a very, very tough schedule, especially when one of your starters uh, retires and you're bringing in a new guy, you have to rebuild that synergy and you're dealing with this type of a schedule. Certainly very tough. But as a GM, obviously, you have to evaluate your team constantly. Uh, you know, you, you look at stage one, you probably think, you know, do we have to make moves? Do, do we not? Uh, you look at stage two, you have, you have to always consider these things. So what were sort of your thoughts as a GM uh, following your team throughout these two stages? What were your thoughts post-stage one? What were your thoughts post-stage two? Uh, you know, how, how, how was, uh, what was going on in your head during that time? So post-stage one, it was kind of interesting because... The team dynamic is kind of interesting in the fact that there was a lot of kind of, I guess, I guess issues with the team, mainly because it was not so much there was, uh, I guess, conflict inside the team, but because the transition, we understood that there was going to be a, we were, there was going to be a patch and we didn't really understand you know, figure out exactly what the patch was going to do with how the team was going to synergize. And it's kind of like, I guess that's a difficult thing with a lot of the the schedule. And I think it's kind of, you know, the Overwatch League, I would say, has one of the most strenuous schedules out of any uh, esports leagues, mainly because, you know, you do have a very small window in between every stage. And if there's a patch, uh, it's, you, 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 you have very little time to get adjusted to that patch uh especially if you make it into playoffs so i would actually say it's worse for any team to make it into playoffs if there is a patch mainly because they have so little time to get ready for a new patch so what a lot of people don't realize is that if there's a new patch and in between two stages so if there happens to be a patch in between two stages um especially so the longest break obviously was between stage two and three, right? Because that happened to have the all stars. Mm -hmm. But most times, like between stage one and one and two, and between stages three and four, the the break is actually very short. Uh, as well as there's that full one week that is lost if you're in playoffs. Uh, what people don't seem to realize is that if there happens to be a patch in between the two stages when teams try to scrim each other uh playoff teams don't scrim on the new patch 
they scrim on the old patch because that's what they're going to play on stage, right? Uh, while all the other teams that are moving into the next stage that didn't make it in the playoffs will be scrimming on the new patch. So it's actually kind of uh, beneficial almost to not make it into playoffs if there happens to be a patch, mainly because you do have that extra week mm -hmm. to get prepared on the new patch. Um, and if you don't make, if you do make it into playoffs, you basically have to finish your playoffs and then immediately start trying to scrim on the new patch. Um, and what we found out is we are also kind of like looking forward at the end of stage one, near the end of stage one, we were trying to figure out if there was going to be a change at some point where three, three meta would go away, you know, mm -hmm. and we wanted to kind of prepare for that. Like I kind of alluded to it, the fact that, um, stellar, wasn't the best mechanical hitscan player for us mm -hmm. and that was very much true and so we wanted to kind of like look at you know getting somebody that would fit a more mechanical role at the time uh we looked at you know but the thing is because you have such little time to figure it out uh we didn't really have much of a kind of a huge window to trial players uh, nor did we have a very big list of players we could really uh, trial or bring on at the time. If we had trialed players from Contenders Korea, to try to get them over from Contenders Korea would have probably taken a lot longer. I am 37 at the time was in Vancouver. Uh, he is a, he is still a Korean citizen. However, uh, because you know the the visa because he was already a resident of Canada. There were some things that we could do, uh, especially because we're also a Canadian-based organization. Uh, we were able to get his visa approved pretty quickly. So, you know, IM37 was actually a really quick pickup for us. Uh, when, he, when we trialed him, uh, he, you know, his, his comms was very good. He was very positive. Obviously, he had zero uh, Tier 1 experience, and he barely had Tier 2 experience. But, you know, he's basically coming straight from, really just from the ladder. Um, you know, he barely got to play anything with second wind. Um, but we, we liked him. We saw his potential. Uh, he's basically one of those players that, you know, we, was very intelligent. Uh, and, but the thing is we didn't expect Stellar's retirement. That actually was a complete like surprise to us because he told us he wanted to retire a week before the start of the Overwatch League, so <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of unfortunate for us because we had been scrimming with Stellar this entire time, and we expected to go into the start of Stage Two with Stellar, and slowly transition. I am thirty-seven. Uh, this did not get to happen at all. <laughs> so for the f we basically had to start scrimming Asher. Because I am thirty-seven was uh, starting to do. He was still at school at the time, also, and he was getting ready to his move from Canada to uh, the United States. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate. So before I am thirty-seven played his first game on the Overwatch League, he had basically played. He had basically scrimmed maybe two times with the team. Uh, that's about it, and. Asher 
even though a lot of people were asking why we didn't keep playing Asher, is that Asher never got to scrim with the team either. So he Asher basically had to scrim maybe three to four times the week before the start of Overwatch League. And it was kind of just unfortunate for us that we just had to know. And the thing is, it's not like we can tell Stellar, hey, I know you want to retire, but we're going to force you to play. Yeah. No, you know, he wants mm -hmm. to retire and we have to respect his decisions. So, you know, it's kind of it, it was kind of a, you know, a shitty situation for us. But, you know, you have to roll with, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I am 37, basically got into L.A., around 9 p.m. and we got him to the team house around midnight this is the day before our first match so he got to no, not scrim that day the next day he had to do all his peripherals set up so that's actually the, the, the day of the overwatch league so <laughs> he had to do his peripheral setup and we could not get to scrim with him that day either so he basically got his first match in the Overwatch League completely cold mm -hmm. with only two scrims with the team. And, you know, it is what it is, right? Mm. So yeah. you just roll with it. As something I just want to double check. So Stellar mentioned that or he notified you guys that he went to retire before Stage 1 or before Stage 2? Uh, like a week before Stage 2. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Obviously, that's super tough. Like you said, because you're dealing with so many things where you have to. First of all, you have to. You're coming off a, at least a decent stage, so you're probably not planning to bring in a lot of players. So that when that gets dropped on you, obviously, that's very difficult to maneuver. Especially like you said, you have to work with visas. So the players you can pick up is severely limited. You can't look at Europe. You can't. You can look at an NA players, but at that time, you guys. You know, you guys. We're still full Korean. You need the Korean player. How can you find a Korean player? You you probably have to trade for him, one that already has a visa, or kind of uh, pick up someone like I'm thirty seven. So obviously a lot of um, uh, issues there. And you know you guys pick up I'm thirty seven as you mentioned uh, briefly in this podcast and what you mentioned oversight as well was the reason Ivy and Stellar worked so well for you guys was because Stellar was more of a cerebral player. He was kind of uh, you know he he could keep. Ivy honest, he could uh, kind of take care of the uh, dirty work while Ivy could just focus on his mechanics. And when he, when a player like that steps down and you introduce I'm 37, who is undoubtedly very mechanically talented, but like you said, he doesn't have experience playing in a team. He, I guess he doesn't have as solid of a foundation as you would expect from an Overwatch League starter. And you pair him with someone like Ivy, who is used to that sort of synergy. Not only are you do you have to consider the fact that you're breaking up the synergy you have of your six-man roster in a GOATS meta, which is, like you said, devastating. It's really, really hard to, uh, kind of a really hard issue to maneuver around. You're also breaking up this synergy between your two DPS players and you're bringing in, I guess, a player who, at least from the outside looking in, considering his background, is more like an Ivy than a Stellar. So you maybe have a little bit of an overlapping skill set, which is sort of... Beyond all the other issues, it, it seemed like those that that was one where one of your major problems was as well because they were role swapping quite a bit. Uh, Ivy was uh, starting on Zarya, then he went to Brig, then he went back on Zarya. What was sort of that? Did, was that one of the main issues, kind of figuring out that synergy uh, on the fly? Yeah, a lot of it had to do with trying to figure out what their roles would be initially, mm -hmm. mainly because you know, in a, uh, a lot of the time. 
with the original roster, Stellar would do a lot of the calming, obviously, because he was the Brigade, uh, Brigade player. Um, and the thing is, when the patch also happened, there was a lot of changes there, too. Clearly, obviously, you know, the, 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 the boop and the mm-hmm. uh, Lucio speed nerf obviously changed how teams had to play. So, you know, the the more aggressive style teams definitely got a, a boost while the the less aggressive teams definitely got a big nerf. And so because we were we'd happened to be a less aggressive style team in stage one, uh, it was a big challenge for us, uh, mainly because, you know, I guess stage one teams could rely very much heavily on their support line, uh, especially their main supports, to be their get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, you really couldn't do that in Stage 2 anymore. And you kind of got to see that a lot with, uh, I guess, early NYXL, the way they played. Like, you know, An- Animo would basically, in Stage 1, basically get the team out uh, out of almost any situation all the time, pretty much. While in Stage 2, with the new patch, you know, you, you really couldn't rely on that reliably. Mm-hmm. And you basically do have to rely on, you know, the, the decisiveness uh, heavily on your front line. And that's kind of where our front line was having a lot of serious issues with. And the fact that we were role swapping a lot at the time, mainly because Ivy was kind of uncomfortable not having uh, Stellar call all the time. And he was expected to call a lot more. And he was not so much, I guess, you know, willing, not so much comfortable in that position. And I am 37, obviously doesn't know how to you know, with zero experience in the Overwatch League, uh, as well as zero experience, nearly zero experience in Contenders, he doesn't know all the, you know, you know exactly how to comm properly, you know, in that type of team environment also. So, you know, they did a lot of role swapping. You know, historically, people try to put hitscan players on Zarya, and that's really kind of like, is not always the best case. I think a lot of teams have kind of noticed that also, that, you know, the transition from Hitscan to Zara is just because, you know, the, the whole idea of tracking doesn't always, you know, is not always a one-for-one thing. And I think uh, some players have kind of noticed that there are a lot of Hitscan players that have tried to transition into the Zarya uh, role in 3-3 and have not found success. And I think, you know, that it's kind of proven. So like, look at the issues with uh, Soon, who's a, a brilliant hitscan player. He obviously does have his issues on Zarya, just like uh, Carpe, uh, one of the best hitscan players uh, in Overwatch League Season 1, obviously did have issues uh, playing Zarya at first also. So I am 37 when he tried to play Zarya. You know, we were hoping that it would work out for him and let let uh, Ivy play Brigida, where you know he'd be more comfortable maybe and not calming as much. And that didn't really work out for us either because IM37 was not as comfortable transitioning into the Zarya role also. Mm-hmm. So we swapped them back and, you know, and they're a bit happier yeah. that way. Yeah. So Yeah, something I'll say about that in terms of Hitscan's transition, transitioning to Zarya, one of the biggest duties of a Zarya player is you have to be very vocal about your bubbling. You have to be able to tempo shift together with your Reinhardt and really control the pace of the fight in the front line. At least it really helps your Reinhardt if you're able to do that, if you're able to kind of call the game around yourself and carry in in that regard. Or at least have someone who can do all of that and really micromanage the team in the Brigade role. But I think ideally that's what you want in a Zarya player. And historically, while a lot of hitscans do have great tracking, 
most hitscan players are used to playing Widow. They're, they're used to playing these stationary heroes who just kind of aim and they're not really relied upon to call a lot and if you don't have that skill developed and you're just kind of quiet and you're not comfortable both in your mechanics and to lead and control the pace of the game it's very very difficult to play Zarya in a team or you're not going to be on the same page with the team so I, I certainly see the um the issue there and like you brought up soon in an excellent example uh beyond that now you've ended up in this situation where you have I'm 37 and you have Ivy. You know, you've identified some of the issues there. And something you also mentioned in a Unicorn in interview before the season was that you really understand or you really value flexibility. And you think that's super important, especially in the DPS roles, uh, because you don't want to be meta dependent. You want to be able to transition and play well in every meta. And that's why you see a lot of teams have this flexibility. You look at someone like NYXL, obviously they have five players, but even in the two that they're starting now, between Nene and Libero, they're covering almost everything. London, between Profit and Birdring, they cover pretty much everything. That's even, okay, so Carpe maybe hasn't excelled in this meta, but you know, in any other meta, he's still sort of serviceable in this meta. In any other meta, him, him and Ikyo cover kind of everything, right? So now that you... Are, you are in this situation where you only have I'm 37 Ivy. Do you feel comfortable? Do, do you feel like this is a potentially a situation where you have to add another piece just to see where you're going to rotate? Because while other positions are kind of, you, you want staple players who don't really rotate around, DPS positions have, uh, outside of a GOATS meta, been the positions where you do rotate. And obviously with Stellar and Asher retiring, you're, you're left with just the... Uh, the two DPS, is this something you're looking to address? And also another question, uh, with Stellar and Asher retiring, because you mentioned that balance is super important for you guys, was there anything you guys could have affected or helped, helped these guys along the way to maybe not end up in this position where they retire? Um, I really don't think we could have done too much for either of them, mainly because um, for Stellar, really, a lot of it had to do with he did miss home a lot. Um, and I think kind of he, you know, the pressure was very hard on him, mainly because if it stayed 3-3 meta fully, he was very comfortable with his position. A lot of his, I guess, internal, uh, like, I guess, stress came from the fact that he was afraid of what would happen when the 3-3 meta goes away. And... Obviously, 3-3 meta isn't gone away. He'd still be doing fine, but, you know, it's still here. It's still going on very strong. But, you know, because his fear was that, you know, what is my role going to be on the team if the 3-3 meta goes away? And no player ever wants to really stay on the bench forever, right? You know, no player wants to just sit there and watch his teammates play all the time and you just sit on the bench. If, you know, then that's what he kind of expected his role would be if, if it became, like, say, you know, you know, DPS got to play DPS again. Um, like, when we would play, like, I guess, we're kind of comfortable with how the two, like, I am 37 and uh, IVR, when they do get to play DPS players, because uh, I am 37 does is able to play all the hitscan player uh, roles, while IV is extremely flexible. He can play pretty much everything. Uh, so... The only we are thinking about possibly getting uh, something else to maybe round out things, but you know that's you know 
I would say later on, or maybe as we go on with the season. But I would say though that in terms of work-life balance, a lot of it had to do with um, Stellar's own, I guess, stress on himself, and you know, in terms of like he built basically his own expectations for himself and it does happen a lot you know players want to always stay at the top and with asher it was kind of a little it was a little different he wasn't we didn't he didn't very have much terms of stress in terms of his own play a lot of it more had to do with he was just unhappy in terms of i guess his direction in life it kind of he kind of alluded to it in his uh his going away post and once he kind of realized that esports really wasn't for him he wanted to move on to a new transition in life and do something else that was he was more passionate about that he was happy again let's mm-hmm. see so i guess moving on to the riddle i think that's a good transition into you guys going uh, for a mixed roster you posted this riddle with the three three pictures and i do believe that no one actually got it um in hindsight it looks pretty obvious because you guys obviously well not obvious it, it was still difficult but you did bring up to uh you know sharik and gods into montreal rebellion maybe you could have potentially figured it out but i think that was also disguised by the fact that you guys were full korean at the time so mainly people were probably just looking at korean players you guys could add and no one really got it i thought it was a, fu- a fun kind of exercise. I hope that other teams sort of do that as well. Instead of this announcement of an announcement stuff that most teams do, just throw a reel out there. You know, have let let people have fun with it. Uh, you know, did you did you think someone would get it uh, when when you posted that reel? What was the thought process behind that? I was thinking maybe someone would get it because I guess I was expecting some teams to kind of so there was going to be internally people that knew about it mainly because if they start scribbing the players they were gonna see the fact that you know gods and sharik was on the team uh as well as even though gods and sharik told nobody uh once they hit la and once they started scrimming uh before the announcement i don't think they scrimmed before the announcement but uh the fact that you can kind of tell what's going on in the tier two scene if once gods and sharik got moved up to the Defiant, our academy team had to start reaching out for trials. So that is sort of a signal across Tier 2 that something just happened uh, on the on Rebellion, uh, especially in the roles that we were trialing for, obviously. So, you know, because of that, we kind of expected there were going to be people in the Tier 2 scene that knew what happened, or at least had a hint at what happened. But, you know, luckily, people that kind of had insider information, none of them actually, you know, posted anything to, <laughs> to try to, like, cheat the process. But I would say I didn't expect any people outside of that to kind of figure it out. Because... No one had done that before. Take a full Korean roster and go non-mixed roster. Uh, you know, obviously the opposite has happened. Uh, to go from a mixed roster to a full Korean roster. Yeah, uh, you experience know, with that? Yes, you do. You personally <laughs> have experience with that. You yeah. know, uh, I have a you know very much respect for my counterpart in uh, Mayhem and Matt. He's a great guy. Uh, they obviously went a different route, uh, and we basically did the opposite of that. We you know, and 
the fact that we historically most teams have always looked at contenders Korea for or just in Korean players in general and the fact that we were going to take the risk of taking a full Korean team and just saying hey uh, we're going to take out what the conventional thought is and just go mixed roster we thought that would surprise people enough that nobody would really get it mm-hmm. and it was pretty funny because when we had figured out what we were doing uh, I, uh, our social media coordinator which is he's, I guess he's pretty well known in the scene as kind of like a big memer as <laughs> Vortex or Eric his real name is Eric, but uh, Vortex. He was like, so uh, do you want to he, – he's like, look, I have these three pictures as a uh, riddle. And I looked at his pictures. I was like, your your pictures suck. <laughs> <Basically, 'cause> his, <laughs> his riddle – I thought his riddle was – I thought his riddle was pretty terrible. Not all of it. One of his – one part of his riddle was actually decent in terms of like his uh, – his clue for mixed roster, but the rest of it I thought would be way too easy. So I said, all right, give me like five minutes. Let me figure out something. And I, five minutes later, I was like, use these three. And, uh, this is going to be, uh, I said, what do you think of these three? And he said, uh, I have no idea what this means. So we'll go with that. So I said, and I posted it and, and nobody figured it out. So it's mm-hmm. actually pretty funny. Yeah. So again, you make the decision to go for a, mixed roster obviously what i tweeted initially was that you guys out of all full korean teams you guys sort of had the pieces to actually make that move work on a short-term basis with since like majority of your roster does have experience playing in mixed rosters with envy with uh aid uh rocky obviously hadn't but aid had uh neko obviously with um um I think with uh with boston uprising i'm 37 yeah. is obviously bilingual so you, you guys could kind of get get away with it did you is this something you thought about kind of when when that crossed your mind that hey we can actually go mixed with this roster we don't only have to look at korean talents um and you know what sort of because with with shriek and gods you guys obviously brought them up to uh rebellion they kind of saved the rebellion season in a way they really impressed in that regard because the team performed much better with those guys in there uh so you know what what was what was kind of your thinking process leading to this uh decision and did you know bringing up uh, Gods and Shriek into the uh, Montreal Rebellion was that basically just a way to protect them until their visas was uh, were, were finished and you were planning to move them up, or were you just kind of impressed by their performance there before you moved them up? What was kind of the thought process through through the whole thing? Uh, we were very much impressed by their performance on the Rebellion, and then we were. So we were just impressed with them in general. So them as a duo in terms of just their decisiveness and I guess their calming and just how they played together was made a big impression on the defined coaching staff in general. So we would say mechanically, we didn't think they were superior than our, our the current front line that, was, that we originally had on the defined. But when we would sit in their comms, it was basically night and day it was just very much uh like what we wanted in our team in terms of comms uh where it was very much driven by the front line you know in the defiant the comms was not really driven by the front line it was driven by the support line and we wanted a comms especially with how the patch uh had shaped up especially after you know with uh stage two after the new patch we wanted you know, the front line to take a lot of the, you know, the leadership role in the team. 
And when we sat in Defiant Comms, we saw that a lot. And we 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 actually kind of like appreciated the fact that they um, took such a direct leadership style with the team and they could sort of synergize well with the support line on the Rebellion. And it was kind of an interesting... It was actually pretty funny because it was like maybe near the end of stage two, um, you know, Bishop, uh, Baroy, and Bubbly, they had all been working very hard to do things. At one point, they they asked me, hey, Jade, can we come to the office to sit down? Uh, well, no, sit to, not the office, but to my, my, my apartment. To, to have a talk uh this is like at like 11 p.m uh this is after like way after scrims i said sure uh you know this is so they came and you know we sat down they sat down on my couch and we had this long like two hour conversation about the team and direction for the team and they said look we we feel like this would be a great move for bringing both uh Sharik and gods up and I said, are you sure? Because once we do this, we have to be sure we're doing this. You know, obviously this is a big move for the team. And they said, no, we're, we're definitely positive about this. You know, we we think that we can make a, a mixed roster work, you know. Um, the funny thing is the team did not know. The team had no idea this was going to go on. Uh, only the coaching staff knew. I knew. Um, and then we told you, obviously, the org, uh, what our plans were. And then we... We told uh, Brian, the uh, GM for the academy team, who's uh, used to be the head coach for uh, Goats and then, you know, first gen. But we uh, basically said, hey, this is what we're going to do. You guys, just letting you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I know you guys are prepping really hard for the finals of North America contenders and everything. Um, and he's, and they were like, no, no, this is great for the team. You know, I'm very excited. You know, obviously, you know, it, it, it's kind of like bittersweet, you know, you, you kind of, it kind of sucks to lose your front line, but at the same time, you're very much excited for them to make it into uh, Overwatch League. Um, but, you know, we wanted to wait to tell Gods and Sharik until after the, the, the finals of, you know, or at least after the, you know, the playoffs happened. So we waited until after the playoffs happened. Obviously, they went, you know, they lost to Fusion University uh, in the semis. They went to a game five. It's, you know, pretty, it's kind of heartbreaking. Gods is pretty, pretty, pretty sad at the end. And uh, I told Brian, I was like, look, I think it's time we tell them, you know, I know it's kind of going to be like an emotional roller coaster for them because they just lost in the playoffs. And I'm about to tell them something that's, you know, hopefully going to be very good news for them. And so, you know, we got on a call with both of them and I said, Hey, you know, just going to let you know, I know, I think, I think you guys did great for the rebellion. And I know you guys are both pretty much, you know, upset about today's loss, but I wanted to let you know that we're going to move you both to the defiant and both of them were pretty much they're in shock because they were not expecting it at all. But, you know, they're very excited to move to defiant. So, very much happy to have on board. When did you say this discussion took place when you sort of made that decision? Immediately after stage two? Uh, this discussion happened, I think, I would say, when was, 
when when we talk about the discussion with uh, Bishop and Baroya. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When, when, yeah, when you guys made that decision to uh, to go for that mixed roster. Oh, probably right at the end of stage two. Okay, so obviously you you, you make this move. You um you you discuss it with the coaching staff. You make this move. After that, what what are your feelings as a GM as well? Because now your outlook of how to build the team both for the rest of the season and for the future kind of shifts because now you have a mixed roster. You can all of a sudden pursue the entirety of uh, the world in terms of talent pool. Um, you know, but what, how how did did that change your mindset at all? Were you kind of excited about the prospect of uh, scouting other regions as well? What, what what is how does this kind of change your outlook on the Defiant uh, for years to come? Oh, it definitely makes a lot of things in terms of like I guess easier in terms of we get to look at players from across North America, EU, Pacific, Australia. Like it doesn't really it doesn't lock us anymore to just looking at Korea contenders. Um, we obviously do appreciate the fact that you know some of the best talent in Overwatch League do still come from Korea contenders. Um, though I would say Korea contenders right now. Is not the Korea contenders before season two, and if people think it still is, they're definitely looking at it with rose-tinted goggles because they're not looking at the same Korea contenders matches as they, as they really because it's the level of Korea contenders now is needs a little time to develop again. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think over a hundred players came from Korea into stage two. That literally drained the talent pool of Korea contenders. So all these teams basically had to reform rosters, uh, you know, using young talent, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old players uh, that had no experience and gives them time they need time obviously to get there and obviously career contenders will probably get there i would say soon mm-hmm. but this season of career contenders was definitely not the same level of uh i guess performance as it was last last year mm-hmm. definitely so but, yeah so something i'm also curious about uh was the plan heading into you know before you even signed your first player was the plan always to go full korean or and were you actually thinking about whether players were bilingual as well so that you would have this option was that on the table at all i would say initially uh we went to go full korean mainly because uh we felt it was the easiest to create a competitive team initially mm-hmm. uh just right at the get-go right out of the gate we felt that it would be easier uh, mainly because we didn't have to deal with the language issues at first uh, once we, we could build a framework for the team, which we have now, obviously, uh, we, we realized we could get comfortable with, you know, going bilingual. And I would say that we had plans to go mixed roster, you know, well in advance, probably before stage two, but we envisioned, uh, I guess, envisioned it like not so much maybe at this point, but, you know. You know, we did had plans to maybe eventually transition the team to a mixed roster at some point, but you know, maybe not this early. Mm-hmm. So, something I'm also curious about uh, in terms of your communication in the team, 
now because even though you do have a lot of guys for bilingual you are sort of in a similar situation that uh we were in with mayhem and we also were, were thinking that well even though we do have a majority korean roster a lot of our guys, our guys are bilingual we had swan who had already played in um a mixed roster with nrg we had um you know, a lot of these guys who seem to have a solid English base. But what we realized, I think, as the season went on, was like it was kind of enough for one player to really not improve his English skills for the whole thing to fall apart. Because if one person doesn't understand, that puts the whole team in jeopardy. And it puts your team in a position where someone has to also assume the responsibility. Oh, you okay. okay, there we go. Uh, assume the resp- responsibility of translating in game you know in in, the, in those key moments and that was one of the biggest issues we struggled with so how do you feel uh, the communication is working now for the team is, is that something you guys are potentially struggling struggling with in this transition period uh where is can where are the english skills i guess of the players who haven't played uh with with mixed rosters is that a concern at all um i would say there is a, a little bit of a concern but you know Going into stage two, the team is actually uh, going to focus very much heavily on. Well, what, the big thing was the first week, I guess, of scrims was absolutely very little on strategy. The entire first week, the team was playing together was building a a baseline of communications for the team. You know, so they would be playing, and there was obviously huge communication issues with the team, and like. Gods would say something, and Ivy would not understand exactly what he said, mainly because he would say, say he would play, play Deva, and he would say, I, you know, I just pushed this player. Like, and, you know, he knocked a player off, uh, like, a high, high zone. But Ivy didn't understand what he meant. And so Bishop realized Ivy would understand if God said, I booped this player. So Gods would transition to saying, hey, I booped this player off. And then Ivy would automatically understand when God said I booped, he meant, you know, he kind of, he knocked the player off like a high area. So, you know, a lot of the first week was figuring out what callouts everybody understood in both, you know, in, in English. Um, and that was very much, that was very important. Um, and going into stage two, the we're going to be doing a lot of, uh, I guess, English classes for the Korean players. Uh, a lot of them have expressed uh, desire to do so. Uh, we didn't do so much in stage one, mainly because obviously we weren't a mixed roster. Uh, number two, because of the difficulty of the, you know, the uh, the scheduling and everything, uh, we just couldn't find a proper time to do it. But uh, we're going to make it a priority to try to do at least you know once twice a week to have uh, English classes. Uh, you know, for the players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, I you know, we face sort of the same situations as well, where we, how can we simplify the communication to the point where everyone understands? And I think it, it probably helps as well the fact that Gods has, you know, when he was on Cloud9, I think Bishop was also there at the time coaching him. And uh, they also that roster, I think, also featured Kaiser and Zephyr. So he does have experience playing with Korean players in that regard. Um so I, I imagine that helps. But something I'm also curious about, uh, as I was watching one of the videos, kind of the vlogs that you guys do, uh, you know, with Gods and Sharik, something they addressed was, um, you know, in-game it's sort of, they're making it work, which is kind of what you're um, alluding to as well. But something they said was tough to kind of get used to was the fact that if you do any sort of team activities outside the game, you go for dinner, whatever it may be. 
then the players automatically revert to Korean, which is something I also experienced. I think, uh, you know, when we were boot camping in Korea and we essentially only had one Western player and a bunch of Korean players who are very comfortable, who are, you know, they won't converse really in uh, in English. It can really, it's really easy for players to feel outside. You know, for me as a coach, it's different because I don't, I'm, I have, I maintain a professional relationship with players. I don't really look I don't really seek friendship in that regard, but even for me, it was a little bit uh, tough in those situations where you should just relax and kind of enjoy yourself. And for players, I think it's it's even harder to feel like you're part of the team from that aspect. Uh, is that something um, you know you guys uh, are worried about? How, how are you sort of trying to help uh, those two guys through the transition in that regard? I think the transition's going pretty well, especially because uh, Gods is a very outgoing player. Uh, just personality-wise, and he gets to, he gets along with the team very well. So, even in a social setting, I think it's it's doing pretty well for them. Like even when they're not playing the game, like gods will just play random games with the other players. Like he'll he was playing League of Legends with the but four of the Korean players. You know, then they were just common English. Like um, I would say, Sharik is a little bit more shy than gods. Definitely, he's a bit more um, you know. He, he, he takes a little time to come out of his shell a little, but you know he is starting to. Uh, obviously, you know it's a big move coming. He moved all the way from the UK over here. You know a lot of people don't realize he is a Latvian, but he does live in the UK. So, you know he's it's a bit of a transition for him. You know, but he does live. You know he lo- he loves living in the house. Uh, both Gods and Sharik, you know we do have a team chef, and you know they both love Korean food, so that works out. Uh, but our team chef also, you know, she cooks, you know, uh, whatever they want. So, you know, she's been experimenting. Uh, she's been giving them a lot of like Western food if they ask for it. But I would say that it's actually, you know, working out well in the fact that the players are trying a lot harder. Uh, the Korean players, I mean, are trying a lot harder to um, bridge the gap with their with their uh, English speaking players. And I know some of the idea is that. Why do, why do, why do foreign like why do non-Western why do non-Western players have to learn English? You know, technically, right now, you know, in, English is the lingua franca of uh, esports, right? Uh, when all team, when everything is side, if a team has a mixed roster of say a North American, a European, a Chinese player, and a Korean player, the one binding language that they'll always common will generally be English, and it's just how it generally goes because. While English is not the easiest language to learn because the Overwatch League is in LA and they're surrounded by English speaking, it's just generally easier to, for everyone to learn it. Uh, there are some Western players that have started to try to learn Korean. Uh, I would say Gods has done, he, he does know some callouts in Korean. He has been trying to learn. I know, I think Cruz, I know, I think on Paris, he's supposed to speak pretty decent like in terms of like uh at least in callouts for overwatch uh, so maybe at some point more uh western players will learn korean but i would say that it's not uh it's it's much easier i guess to just calm in english for most of the teams if they're especially if they're a mixed roster mm-hmm. so i know you have to run soon so i don't want to keep you for much longer but there's just a couple of things i kind of want to get your take on uh, i guess the most topical thing being uh, you know, Fusion University making the decision to move their t- uh, academy team to Korea. Uh, and I, th- I think that's interesting for multiple 
reasons because obviously they do foster a lot of Korean talent. So in that regard, it kind of makes sense. But I think you also have to consider the fact that next season you will, I suppose, want, there's a lot of value in keeping your academy team in the same city as your main team because you have a consistent screwing partner, right? So obviously you guys do have an academy team, even though a lot, while a lot of teams are dropping their academy teams um, this this year, you guys still have Montreal Rebellion. You you know obviously brought up two guys. You have uh, gained value from your academy team in that sense. What is what are your now that kind of Fusion University has set this precedent? Uh, do you, where do you see Montreal Rebellion going in terms? Do you think you you will want to keep them together with the team? Would you ever consider moving them to another region? What what is your thought process in that regard? I don't think we would ever move them to another region. We want we. We definitely want to keep the Montreal Rebellion in general, but we also want to keep... I would say we're more... We're not sure what our final plans are for the Rebellion, but my preference, as well as I would say the coaching staff preference, is to bring the Rebellion and the uh, Defiant together uh, as much as possible. Sort of similar to how a lot of, I guess, league uh, you know, teams in other, uh, I guess, leagues... Uh, that have academy teams develop, but we feel like, I guess the general consensus is that a lot of academy teams basically are considered a burden, uh, while I feel that they should be a resource instead. And a lot of teams use them as a resource for one main purpose. For the longest time, they were just a resource to dump players that you wanted to hold on to until you can sign them of their of age until they can go into the Overwatch League. Case in point, you know, you dump Korean players that you want to scout them when they're 16 years old or 17 years old, uh, but you want to sign them early on for a less buyout than when they're obviously of age to get into the Overwatch League when they're 18. And so you put them on your academy team and you hold them there and you give them experience on your academy team. And then when they're 18, you can move them up easily into your... Uh, your Overwatch League team. But I think that is a... I think Overwatch League teams don't get the real value out of their academy team. I think your academy team should be an extension of your your main team. I think it should be a huge tool and a huge resource tool. I think coaching staff from both your academy team and your, your main team should work hand-in-hand. Hand. And I think that's something that doesn't happen uh, quite often. And I think that's very important. I think Number one, you don't have to field a constant 12-man roster in Overwatch League if you have an academy team that you're developing very well. Because if you develop that academy team very well, that could be your internal scrim partner. Instead of making a 12-man roster in Overwatch League and then having a B team and an A team there and saying, that's my internal scrim partner. Because once you're in Overwatch League and you have two full rosters you can field in your Overwatch League team... That kind of creates a precedent with the fact that you're going to have a lot of players that are benched half the time, and no player wants to stay benched when they're in the Overwatch League, right? Uh, but if you have an academy team and you develop your academy team properly, you can actually have an academy team that is good enough to be a scrim partner when you need internal scrims. You don't obviously you don't need internal scrims all the time, but you know when you you have them when you need them, obviously. But you know it's best to develop those players. Uh, obviously, you want to look at players that are worthwhile to develop, right? You want to see players that 
you want to look at players for your academy team that you can envision. And that's what's very important. When Overactive Media uh, asked us, you know, for going uh, later, as we continue on with the Rebellion, um, that their main thing was when they talked to me and Bishop about the Rebellion, as we look for future players for the Rebellion, it's like, we want us, they want us to focus on players that they feel that we can eventually move them into Overwatch League. If not in Defiant, in general, just move them into the Overwatch League in general. So I think that's very important. Yeah, I think you bring up a ton of really good points, and I think I completely agree with the fact that you can get so much more value out of the Academy team. I think, especially with Mayhem, from all our failures this year, I guess something that I think did very well was the Academy team, and it's something that I think we took very seriously from the summer. You know, I worked with the Academy team. I kind of worked hand-in-hand with our Academy staff and tried to build that project up to the point where it was a serviceable uh, scrimming partner we did get a lot of value from scrimming our uh, contenders team they ran stra- specific strategies for us to prepare for Chengdu for instance which you could never get practice against Chengdu compositions otherwise so there's a ton of value in that regard and then I think obviously the mayhem wouldn't have even though they dropped their team now they wouldn't really have been able to make this big move to secure someone like fate if they did not have an academy team right so I think uh, you know it does give you a lot of options if you don't just look at uh, money you're investing and what you're getting in return on a monthly basis but if you kind of take a long-term uh, approach to it um re- real quick what do, what do you think about uh, that uh, valiant and um mayhem trade who do you think uh, won the trade what do you think it won that one down it's hard to say right so on paper uh you could technically say mayhem won mainly because fate was obviously a huge name. You know, he's got a huge history. Uh, you know, you have two academy players coming up, and you have uh, another player that was benched for a while. But you really can't tell, right? You can't tell until the team starts scrimming with these players. You know, will you know will fate turn out to be brilliant for the mayhem, and will the three players that Valiant picked out be brilliant for uh, Valiant? You know, you you know you. you People can sit there, uh, you know, be armchair generals all the time and say, this was a terrible uh, so-and-so decision for either team. But you have to give <laughs> you have to give both teams, you know, chances to at least, you know, scrim with the players, develop synergy with the players, and then field the teams to really get a good, you know, you know, sense for who really came out on top. You know, I would say maybe on paper, uh, Mayhem may have, done very well mainly because of who fate is in terms of just like you know how he is as a player uh his experience you know just in general uh you know but maybe it turns out that valiant you know you know they were they're the players that they got from mayhem were the missing pieces they needed to excel so we won't really know until we see stage three right yeah and it's gonna be interesting so let's um i guess round off because i know you got to run uh with one last question uh speaking of stage three and i guess the rest of the season uh now that you've made these moves you're heading into stage three obviously still a lot of hurdles to overcome you guys are sitting at seven and seven two games away from that number six spot which secures your playoffs you're right in there in, in the mix for top 12 to be in the gauntlet uh where do you see the team being by the end of the regular season what sort of what would make what are your internal expectations and what would make uh, jay happy and satisfied i guess i think you know just 
doing well over well well for the season, making it to the playoffs would probably make us pretty happy, especially with the fact that, you know, we've had to do so many last minute changes with the team, especially with the hurdles the team has to go through uh, and the constraints that we've been under and especially with terms of time crunches and everything. Uh, we did come into the season with our, one of the smallest rosters. We only had eight men coming in and then we barely did any changes to it. Uh, we had to make, you know, last minute changes with Stellar into IM37. That definitely was very much last minute. That was a last minute in terms of one week change. And so I would say any, if making it into playoffs would in at the end of the season would, or just the gauntlet in general would be pretty much a win for us. Um, but the fact that we're, we're, we're kind of happy with how the team is progressing, you know, as they get used to the language issues, uh, as they get used to just playing with each other. Obviously, whenever you bring in new players, the players have to get used to each other, especially in this meta. But uh, we love how the team is progressing. So we're very much excited for that. So. Awesome. Especially with, especially with the, uh, the upcoming changes that we'll be announcing to Academy, uh, which will be soon i would say would i think the announcement will be either this week or next week so any riddles for that one i i don't think it's as big a deal mm-hmm. i don't know for the academy <laughs> so okay. i would say that uh you know we do we we will be announcing uh you know we'll be announcing a new head coach that's one thing obviously because mm-hmm. we did mutually part ways with dreaming by Zenith. um you know as well as we will be announcing replacements for Gods and Sharik. So. Okay, cool. Um, looking forward to hearing more about that. And obviously, I wish you guys the best of luck. It's going to be very exciting to see how this uh, experiment works. It's certainly historic. It's something that I'm rooting for that it does work. It's going to be exciting to see you guys. And, uh, you know, obviously, thank you for your time. I know you're busy. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to let you go. And for everyone listening, as always, you can catch this uh, podcast on YouTube. You can catch it on pretty much every platform, any platform that you might listen to podcasts on. You can probably find us there under Tempo Shift. And, uh, yeah, thank you, Jay. Any, any parting words? Uh, no, I mean, uh, thank you. And I hope uh, hope everyone's excited for the, I guess, the the change in roster and how it'll pan out, especially I think it could be if I, I hope that it inspires other teams to be willing to take a risk against the convention of just sticking to Korean rosters. I'm not saying that all Korean rosters are bad, obviously not, you know, runaway is a prime example that it's not a bad idea. Right. But I'm just saying that you, it is a very good thing, especially in an international league that you do try other things. Right. So, All right. Thanks a lot, Jay. All right. No problem. Take care.